Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. Starting to get the shakes because February is tomorrow, and that means all of the romance sermons from the Seeker Driven guys. Oh, the least favorite thing ever. Close second. Uh, beginning of the year prophecies, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word and do the comparative work to test and see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, apostolates, uh, you know, authors, those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books, oh, we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's weird how that works, but that's often how that t- plays out. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being taught, what's being said, it isn't biblical. It's n- not even in many cases rational anymore. I, <laughs> you know, I do you remember the day when, uh, you know, when people would claim that they saw the face of Jesus in a tortilla or, you know, something like that, or the Virgin Mary on a tree trunk and, you know, you'd scratch your head and go, what is going on with these people? Well, it's happening like in, you know, Protestantism, you know, evangelicalism, like everywhere. It's just really strange, delusional stuff where, I mean, it is, I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian for that long to say, you know, I don't think that's what the Bible says. I mean, you you don't have to be even skilled at all. And my question is, why are these people, you know, in droves sitting in these buildings that call themselves churches? You know, maybe it's because they serve Starbucks or maybe because their brains have been beaten to a pulp by the repetitive, nonsensical praise songs that, you know, which, oh, anyway. And so they sit there and it's just like obvious, you know, you know, like the person who, you know, has a piece of food stuck to their face. You sit there and just hold still. Let me get that off your face. 
you know, it's it's just kind of that obvious, and nobody's saying nothing. Nobody's leaving. It's it, it's the weirdest thing. I can't even explain what's going on, except for maybe delusion. You know, sent by God. It's not a good thing. You know, you want to talk about harbingers? Yeah, that would be a harbinger of bad things if uh, people aren't hearing the gospel and being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, you know, that ain't going to end well. That's the only way I can describe what's going to happen there. So anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. What, uh, yeah, it's like, okay. <laughs> we're going to start off with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update and feature somebody new. That's right, Dr. Michelle Corral. And... um She's brought back the 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 beehive hairdo thing. Uh, you know, I must confess, I have not seen this in a while. But she's brought back that beehive hairdo thingy back when I was a kid. That you know, in the early seventies, there were women who were still kind of holdovers from the sixties with that beehive thing. So she's brought it back, and uh, and so she, we're going to be checking in it with her prophetic word telecast. Uh-huh. And uh, as she explains to us, uh, you know, how we need to be possessing our land. No, that's right. You, are, are you possessing your promised land? Well, if you're not, well, what are you thinking? And uh, and then we're going to do like a, um, how do I explain this? A David and Nicole Crank twin spin together. Yeah, kind of mix it up. Uh, we'll begin with David Crank. He has... A video up on the Faith Church St. Louis website titled Move of God. And uh, in no joke, he's calling out healings and stuff like that. And and we'll throw into the mix Nicole Crank's uh, most recent message titled The Power of Thankfulness, where apparently they've chosen to go with a country and Western theme out there in in, uh, St. Louis. Yeah, that's right. And so she's wearing her uh, cowboy duds and, you know, and... (laughs) And so we'll check in with that, and this this will take us probably past the uh, the first break, and uh, and then after the break, somewhere in there, we'll we'll do a Robert Morris update. Yeah, Robert Morris update. He was recently on um, James Robeson's program, and they were talking about you know the uh, the need to hear God's voice. And we're going to note the technique by which they arrive at this doctrine. They will not be opening up the Bible, going to a clear word of God that it says, here's what God wills, here's how to hear his voice. Instead, it's all going to be based upon extrapolations. This is like extrapolation theology, not based upon a clear passage of Scripture, but extrapolations based upon one of the central doctrines of American evangelicalism that uh, God desires to have a relationship with you. Now, I, in one sense, that's true. But you know, so you know, but the question is, what type of relationship are we talking about? And what they do, though, is they work from that. Well, God wants to have a relationship with you. And from there, they just start putting together kind of like logical syllogisms. Well, if this is true, then this has got to be true too, and this has got to be true too. And 
And uh, you know, I sit there and go, yeah, no, I'm going to go with that uh, thing that the uh, Lutheran theologians have been saying for a long time, uh, quad non est biblicum, non est theologicum. If it ain't in the Bible, it's not scripture. Yeah, and so in order to do doctrines, you need clear passages. So uh, that will be our number one. Our number two, we're going to head over to Bethel Church, Redding, California, and we're going to review a sermon by Eric Johnson, the son of Bill Johnson. And uh, he's going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And I think the name of his sermon is, uh, You Give Them Something to Eat. And we're going to note here that although technically you can say he's working his way through <laughs> a, a passage of Scripture, he's not actually engaging in exegesis, which is just bizarre to uh, to see it happen. So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to try to do some teaching along the way. Uh, so I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, that requires us to do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, there they are standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the chairman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a bowl of ball, a penny a pitch. Sing and roll a bowl of ball, a penny a pitch. Sing and roll a bowl of ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, sing and roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, and this is just going to be miserable teaching. Uh, this is from the Prophetic Word telecast. Dr. Michelle Corral, uh, she has literally brought back the uh, the beehive hairdo. I in, Like I quoted earlier, I, I haven't seen this style of hair since I was a kid. <laughs> Not sure what to make of it. She kind of looks like Elvira, you know, now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, so she's explained to us. How we go about possessing our land. Let's see what happens. Here is Dr. Michelle Corral. Things, the real personality of different individuals comes out because sometimes when that word is given to you, um, it's a real test and a real trial. So we see here, Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, and I will slay my brother Jacob. So here, All right, so supposedly she's reading from Genesis chapter 27, I think. We see he had to immediately leave and go to the land. His mother instructs him in the next few verses to go to Padam Aram and go to Laban, her brother, just yeah. for a few days. A few days. No, I... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I recently rambled my way through the entire book of Genesis. That isn't exactly right. 
journey turned into 22 years. 22 years, Jacob lived in the land of Syria outside the place of his prophetic word. So now when we... (laughs) Oh, we're off to a bad start. So, yeah, so there is poor Jacob, man. I mean, he was supposed to just... It was supposed to be a quick, you know, weekend trip to go get a wife. Um, and it turned into a 22-year excursion. And during the that entire 22 years, he was outside of his prophetic territory. And, oh, man. And so, I mean, just consider the implications that this has for your life. I mean, are you possessing your prophetic territory right now? Or are you, like Jacob, outside of your prophetic territory and land? Yeah. Open the book to Genesis 37, and we read Jacob reoccupied the land, not dwelt in the land, reoccupied the land. He reoccupied the land of Canaan, wherein his father was a stranger. So, uh-huh. so uh, Genesis 37, some important point there that, uh, you know, Jacob, man, he reoccupied. So, you know, are you occupying your... Uh, Genesis 37, by the way, it says Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Let me check the King James here, see if that's what she's, uh, Jacob dwelt in the land where in his father, okay, how about the NIV? Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing the reoccupy thing. Um, <laughs> Where'd you find that? What trans? What Hebrew word are you referring to? Yeah, how? Why don't we do it that way? I mean, after all, you are Doctor Michelle Corral, so I'm assuming you know you have a doctorate in theology, which required you to study the original languages. Uh, that maybe that's too much of an assumption, but uh, okay. So, so th- I didn't see the reoccupy verb there. Hmm we're about to read is going to tell us how he reoccupied the promises of God. Put your hands up right now and say this with me. In 2017, I'm receiving an anointing to take possession of every prophecy that God has given to me. I'm about uh-huh. so you're yeah, I'm gonna so I need to Take possession of every prophetic whatever, yeah, for 2017. So apparently, um, I'm pretty sure uh, Dr. Michelle Corral is um, reoccupying the beehive hairdo. I'm pretty clear on that. To reoccupy the taken territory. I don't care what I've got to go through to possess my prophetic word. In the mighty name of Jesus, I will take back the territory. Can I get... Yeah, you you go right ahead. You, You go, just start you know, taking possession and reoccupying prophetic territory. I I think you should do that, yeah. I don't know how one goes about doing such a thing, but, I mean, it sounds really kind of important and somewhat Bible-ish. So, yeah, you you, you go right ahead. Witness somewhere. Yeah, so she got applause for that. Okay. Isn't it something how this is the introduction that scripture gives us to the sale of Joseph? Okay. This is the preface to all of the trials that Joseph is about to go through. Uh-huh. 
right. Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, that whole reoccupy verb that I didn't even see in the text. Jacob reoccupied the land wherein his father was a stranger. So after 22 years, he's finally back in the place that God has ordained for him. After 22 years, he's going to take possession of that prophecy. After- uh-huh. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's what apparently Jacob was doing. He was taking possession, repossessing the prophecy. Okay. 22 years, something is going to be done that is so outstanding and so incredible. We see the moment he began to walk toward his prophetic word, trouble happened. There was trouble in Shechem, and then there was trouble, all those mass murders that his sons committed. And then the moment he gets into the land of promise, his wife, um, uh, Rachel, Rachel, she dies giving birth. So the moment he steps into the land of promise, we see that possessing the promises for Jacob, it begins through a travail, a tribulation. But now the scripture is going to articulate for us how he repossessed the land of Israel for him and all of his descendants. And this is going to be based on the context. How he repossessed it for him and all of his descendants. You see, the we- here's kind of the weird thing is, um, <laughs> you know, if I, if I can point this out in the book of Genesis, you know, you got you have God actually prophesying that the children of Israel would go into, well, slavery in Egypt. Yeah, for 430 years. And so with the story of Joseph, Joseph being one of the major uh, figures in the book of Genesis, who type and shadow, I mean, wonderfully mirrors the, you know, the incarnation, death, resurrection, glorification of Christ himself. I mean, it's amazing stuff. And I, you know, and I rambled my way all the way through Genesis. And you go back into the archives, look for Rosebro's ramblings on Genesis, and you can, you know, track with me as I teach literally through the entire book. And it took a while to do so. But uh, note this fact that with the story of Joseph, um, Jacob and all of his sons and the, all of the Jews at the time, they end up leaving Israel, yeah, Canaan, and go to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, the uh, Pharaoh, you know, who you know, dies, who was the Pharaoh at the time of Joseph, and enslaves the people of, you know, the descendants of uh, Jacob, and they're enslaved for 400 years, yeah. Um, so so here's the thing. What she's saying doesn't even make any sense because Jacob really only spent, you know, a few decades back in his pro- prophetic territory and then headed for Egypt. So I, I don't understand what you're talking about, lady. Through years of tribulation and test compared to no other. And the scripture documents this so that we might know that if we've gone through some trials and tribulation, we're just taking back the territory. Some Right. Yeah. That's weird. Narcissus there. Yeah. So we just need to know that, you know, we're going through trials and tribulations because we're taking back our prophetic territory. Yeah, that's just nonsense right there. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you know Greek or Hebrew or you've studied theology. 
That's just nonsense right there. Times taking back the territory and reclaiming possession of the promises doesn't just happen because you quoted a scripture over it. That's wonderful and that's great. But sometimes the destiny is so great, it's so massive that you don't even know that you're possessing the promise through all the trials and Right, yeah. Sometimes your density is so thick. <laughs> Sorry, density destiny is so great that um yeah, you don't even realize that you're prophetically pos possessing and taking repossession of your prophetic destiny thingy. Right, yeah. Tribulations that you've been through. Somebody ought to say this trial and tribulation is only going to work supernatural exaltation toward the divine design of destiny in my life. Can I get... Yeah, that's again, just a bunch of gibberish there. Uh-huh. With words like divine and destiny thrown in to make it sound like all the people listening are so important. I mean, so the trials they're going through, this is just them repossessing their divine density. Yeah. It is somewhere. So you got an entire auditorium full of people clapping at this, thinking that they're being taught something significant. Yeah, that should tell you just how well, messed up and confused the uh, current state of affairs is in the uh, visible church and in evangelicalism today. Wow, that was a whole lot of nothing. All right, moving along. Yeah, time for a update regarding David and Nicole Crank. Sing along if you know the, the lyrics. Time to do some dream weaving. So we're heading over to Faith Church, St. Louis, and we're going to be uh, listening to David Crank from uh, a video titled The Move of God. And we're going to let this spin out for a little bit. We'll throw in Nicole for, uh, you know, I don't know, comedic relief. I don't even know what that would be. But uh, we'll, so we'll kind of go back and forth between the two of them, and this will take us past the first break. But... Let's go ahead and uh, check in first with David Crank as he's uh, apparently leading a move of God. Here we go. let him touch you right now just just let him touch me what does that mean i mean jesus is god if he wanted to touch me he could touch me anytime he wants he doesn't need me to let him touch me what does that mean he's there on facebook jesus is on facebook i knew it oh man see yeah see you ever get one of those things where you you know 
that somebody sends you that you need to friend Jesus on Facebook. And, you know, I felt like such a sinner because, yeah, when, when Jesus sent me the friend request, I didn't accept him as my friend. And now David Crank is telling me that Jesus is on Facebook. And I didn't even friend him. What kind of Christian am I? He's there in the hotel room. He's here. You can just you can just wait on the Lord. Yeah, he's all by himself on Facebook in a hotel room, apparently. Sometimes it's good just to be quiet. I would suggest that you begin doing that right now, David. So much noise. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes it comes when you're quiet. What comes when I'm quiet? Sometimes it comes when I'm quiet. What's it? What's it? Somebody has a skin condition, especially in your just itches. (laughs) Well, my skin is crawling right now while listening to this. Okay, so somebody has a skin condition and it and it itches. Mm -hmm. Isn't this weird? Okay, so why if he if he really believes that the Holy Spirit is speaking to him right now? Why isn't he saying, all right, there's a woman, her name is Veronica. She's on the third row right here. Veronica, Jesus just told me you have a skin condition. And the medical name for the skin condition is eczema or, you know, something like that. You know, so you you know, so we got some vagaries going on here. Uh, Yeah, so the... (laughs) So I, you know, I kind of like to picture the Holy Spirit, you know, up in heaven, you know, with a pair of binoculars, and he's <laughs> got a microphone, you know, attached to uh, David Craig's heart or whoever's calling out the, you know, the healings like this. And there's the Holy Spirit. All right, um, okay, let me look through my binoculars. Okay, all right, there's this person. Um, I forget her name. Um. And oh, let me look. Oh, you, oh, whoa. Oh, yeah. Okay, they they have a skin condition. I seem to remember an email about that, but you know, emails are really confusing to me. Okay, so David, David, let me let me tell you. Um, there's a person. I uh, I can't remember the person's name, but they have a skin condition, and uh, they'll know it's them when you say it itches. <laughs> let me get my binoculars and look some more here. Um, there's a person with a, a goiter. Um, oh, what's his name? Um, I oh, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Being healed right now. Another person has real bad popping in joints. There's popping, grinding. The Lord's touching that right now. Where, wherever you hurt. <laughs> wherever you hurt, there's popping and grinding. and The Lord's healing that right now. Yeah. Your hand. The Bible said to lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Yeah. So just take it, lay it on your ear, lay it on your heart. <laughs> so you, you want people to lay hands on themselves? Can you do that? 
I'm going to lay hands in my own ear and... <laughs> Wherever it hurts, Jesus is touching you right now. Jesus is touching you. Jesus. Jesus. All right, so we're, <laughs> we're going to have to pause right there. What a mess. <laughs> As the vagaries of calling out healings, there's somebody who needs to lay hands on themselves on their own ear and what on earth. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, more David Crank, a little Nicole Crank, and then Robert Morris on James Robeson's program. Yeah, stay tuned, don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? 
You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor claims direct revelations and doesn't rightly handle God's Word. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made it $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. It helps us have a steady foundation financially from which we can budget pay our bills, keep the lights on, pay for our broadcasting fees, server fees. You get the idea. And uh, and then, of course, you'll plan our next exploits. But if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right now what we're doing right now we just listened to david crank i'm going to uh, change it up a little bit here and we're going to check in with david's wife nicole nicole crank uh from faith church st louis she's also one of the teaching pastors there um god's word forbids women from being pastors and forbids them from doing what it is that you're going to hear her doing uh, which is preaching in a sermon in God's house. But uh, aside from all of that, I'm sure this is just going to be fine. I'm sure what we're going to hear is going to be on the level, totally biblical and right in line with God's word, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably not. But uh, here's uh, Nicole Crank. Well, happy. 
be Country Sunday. If you're wondering why the boots and if you're wondering why the hat, it's because we like to have fun at church. Okay, um, <clears throat> I'm having a hard time breathing here. Hang on a second. In through nose, out to mouth. In through nose, out to mouth. Okay, so the reason why she's dressed up in country duds, you know, with straw hat and cowboy boots and all that kind of stuff, is because they like to have fun at church. Shoot me now. Yeah, okay. We could just be boring and it could be old and it could be stodgy or we could do fun church. Do you guys like fun church? <laughs> so let me see if I have this right. Kind of a weird dichotomy. We can be old and stodgy, you know, actually consider, you know, the church where we attend to be like the house of God and embassy of the kingdom of God and, you know, and that Christ is present and, you know, when you know, in some way through the our reverence, recognize the presence of God among us. Or we could just, you know, which is old and stodgy, or we could just have fun and, you know, watch our female pastrix dress up in cowboy country duds. Let's have some fun. Well, since it's country Sunday, when I say, do you like fun church, say yeehaw. Ready? Because Jared started that and y'all did it so good for him. I want to see if it's just him or if it's like y'all. Ready? So if, if you like Country Sunday, say yeehaw. Yeehaw. Boom sauce. Y'all are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trust me when I t- tell you that if uh, you know, the, the congregation that I serve, uh, at uh, that's Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. Yeah, if, if I were to do this. Come dressed up in country duds, you know, and then say, come on, everybody, it's country Sunday. Just come on. Give me a good old yeehaw. Yeah, that would be the last Sunday I was ever the pastor at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. Just saying, you know. It's going to be a good day. Well, while we're busy looking at each other and saying things, why don't you look at your neighbor right now, Weldon Spring, and say, what are you looking at? <laughs> what is the purpose of all of that i'm not exactly sure now before i spontaneously combust let's um check back with her husband who's currently in the middle of uh leading a move of god hang on a second here we go jesus He's engaging in some kind of prophetic singing of some kind. You're always the same, Lord. Glory, 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 glory. Glory to your name. Glory to your name, Lord. You're the Alpha and Omega. Maybe he's waiting for the next impressions from the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is up in heaven. With his binoculars, you know, looking for his next victims or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
reveal your love throughout eternity, Lord. Lord, have your way. I promise we'll do what you say, Lord. Yeah, you know, see, that's a lie right there. Yeah, you, you say you're going to promise he's going to do what he says. Yeah, just check those Ten Commandments. He said that. Uh, and then let me know how you're doing on that. Oh, we're walking in your way, Lord. We pray for strength. And we pray for unity. We bind up racism. Terrorism and all the plans of the enemy, Lord. We- uh, so he's building up to something here. I mean, he's, I mean, this prophetic make up your own lyrics as you go thingy okay he's live he's literally leading a move of god right now as we speak so Wait, wait, wait. You might be getting more revelation from the Holy Spirit. We need to sit at the edge of our seats. New revelation coming. He's looking serious here. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Anything could happen right now. He just said anything could happen right now. Okay. Get ready for anything. Anything could happen right now. Anything. Anything, anything can happen right now. Anything. Thank you, Jesus. The moon could turn into blue cheese. Whatever you need, there's just a, there's a glory cloud right above your head. You- there's a glory cloud, hmm, above my head. Hang on, let me look. No, I'm not seeing it. Maybe it's on Facebook. Facebook, you at home, just by faith, stick your hand up in it. By faith, stick your hand up into the glory cloud. Okay, we're going to just leave you there for a second. Let's check back with your wife. You, you're quite the dynamic duo, you know. What are you looking at? Answer your neighbor and tell him, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> now, we're not trying to start any fights. Just trying to make a quick point to start the message in that what we're looking at is typically what we see. Right? That kind of makes Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's really profound there. Um, What I'm looking at is what I normally see. That's generally how eyesight works. Yeah, that's correct. Doesn't it? If we focus on something, if we look at something, have you ever noticed you go to buy a car? Yeah. And you have never seen a Toyota Sentra on the road to save your life. But you buy a Toyota Sentra and suddenly the world is inundated with Toyota Sentras everywhere you go. It's like... is Sentra a Toyota? I thought that was a Nissan. I'm just saying, you know. No. Did everybody buy a car the same day as me? Because what we look at is what we see. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at a woman pastor dressed in country and western clothes. And if we are looking at the negative... We're going to think life is just negative and problems. But if we're looking at all the good things that God is doing for us, and we have a thankful spirit, and the thankful spirit is what comes when we look at the positive, then we're... <laughs> thankful spirit is... Right. You know, I seem to remember a blasphemous movie uh, by Monty Python, and there was a song that was sung 
by a group of fellows that was, you know, they were being crucified while they were singing it. I think the lyrics went something like this. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Hey. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you forgot. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. Yeah, I think you get the point. Let's uh, get back to this thing called the sermon. I don't think it is one, but we continue. I feel a lot better about life. Yeah. Uh, to just uh, tell you a little bit of a story, there's a butcher and this dog walks into his butcher shop. And when he comes... Uh-huh. So she's not starting with a biblical text. She's starting with a joke. Butcher shop. Um, he's pawing at the hamburger. As he's pawing at the hamburger, the butcher says, all right, you want hamburger. Ha ha. And the dog goes, Whoa. he's like, really? How many pounds of hamburger do you want? Whoa. You want two pounds of hamburger? Whoa. Oh, well, okay. I'll get you two pounds of hamburger. Dog comes around. He's got a $10 bill in his mouth. He's like, oh, I got to make you change. Dog go, runs over to the bratwurst and starts pawing at the bratwurst. He said, you want bratwurst? Whoa. How many? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You want three bratwurst? Whoa. He walks back and he says, that's $10 exactly. Okay. And he ties the meat to the dog's collar that he's pushing up with the little hook. And he says, I'm following this dog home. Dog walks to the crosswalk and the light is red. So the dog sits down and waits until the light changes. When the light changes, he walks across the street, heads to his house, but starts to get real panicky as he comes up to this house. And, and he starts clawing on the door and clawing on the door. Then nobody answers. And he starts throwing himself at the door and throwing himself at the door. Finally, a man answers the door and he's all aggravated. He said, dog, you're about the stupidest dog I ever did see. The butcher jumps out and says, wait, I got to tell you what happened. And he tells the whole story. And the butcher said, this dog is smart. He said, this dog isn't smart. It's the third time this week he's forgot his key. Yeah. <laughs> bump. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Sermon's quite the joke, isn't it? Let's check back with David Crank. My dad used to teach me about spiritology. People are hungry for the spirit. You know, people tell me sometimes, I go, you know, I I, kind of faked everybody out for years. I kind of looked Baptist because I went for like this approach of soul winning and being relative. And so you never know unless you were a Holy Ghost person. You're like, that dude's a Holy Ghost dude. The dude's a Holy Ghost dude. I had no idea. Okay, yeah. So I tricked everybody until everybody thought I was normal. And then when the church got really big, I said, I'm just going to just do what the Lord tells me to do when he tells me to do it. So now all y'all Catholics that didn't know anything about this and Lutheran and Baptist, and now you're just like, it's like crack. When you feel the Holy Ghost, you can't go back to normal church. Uh, I, I have no reason to believe you're hearing from the Holy Ghost at all. None whatsoever. Your wife 
is a pastrix. Yeah, God's God the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to forbid that, not just once, but twice. So, uh, yeah, you sure you're hearing from the Holy Ghost and you're a Holy Ghost guy? Okay. People are, my dad told me, people are hungry for the supernatural. That's why they call psychic lines. That's why they go to palm reading. And don't go to palm readings. Don't go to psychics. That's witchcraft. You go to church, you hear from the Holy Spirit. He speaks. God. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. Um, and if they wanted to hear from the Holy Spirit, they should open up their Bibles. All the scriptures God breathed, you know. People are con men. They're crooks. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of con men and crooks uh, posing as pastors nowadays and Holy Ghost guys. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But as my dad taught me about uh, spiritual things, I want to teach you because you're sons and daughters in this house. If you'll go into a room and how many of y'all really like what you're feeling? Even on Facebook, say you like it, okay? You like what you're feeling? Um, I'm feeling creeped out. Talking to you, you like it. I want to see it again. Raise your hand if you like it. Okay, so here's how you do it. D- do what? Ricardo. So you just get in a room and you just turn on some music. It could be any kind of music. If it- just get in a room and turn on some music. Any kind of music. I like samba. Worship music. And you just go in a room and maybe Ricardo, he's got some songs you like or something. And then... The Holy Spirit, you just start, oh, I love you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. Oh, and you might not feel anything for two or three minutes. I may not feel anything, okay. I'm going to go do dumb stuff. Yeah. And then you just keep worshiping the Lord, and then all of a sudden, even your flesh will go, oh, I feel something right now. And then your flesh will be like, oh, I want to stay here all day. But you got to carve out time. Yeah, you got to carve out time for a feeling. To just obey the Lord. Um, where does the Lord tell me to do that? So I, that's some kind of command I need to obey. And then if you're a singer, it doesn't matter. The Lord thinks you're a good singer even if you can't sing. That's why I said make a joyful noise. To you, you're like, this is just noise. To the Lord, he's like, I like that. In other words, if, if Jesus had a refrigerator, he'd have a picture you colored on it. So that's what my baby did. So just um, close your eyes, and if you're hungry for the things of the Spirit, you want a deeper relationship with Jesus, raise your hand, even on Facebook, just say, yes, I want it. Yeah, if, if I um, needed a deeper relationship with Jesus, this would be the last place I'd go to find that. Relationship with Jesus. And we're going to just flow for a minute. And then you're going to flow. That's a new church word. Hadn't heard that one. Okay. No, Ricardo might sing a song he's written, or he might sing a song just like I did. All wasn't flow the word for like 2015 at Elevation Church. I I, I thought it was. songs just came from heaven. But I want you to practice the presence of Jesus tomorrow. Okay, so you, you want me to what? Practice the presence of Jesus? Yeah, that's a that's a. That's a practice from mysticism. Wow. God to touch you. Then after he touches you tomorrow when you're driving to work. Yeah. Don't. Is he going to touch me while I'm driving? I mean, that, that could cause an accident. Into the radio. Just turn on some music. And just flow. Whatever it is that comes out of your heart. 
Turn on some music and just flow, you know, because he's a Holy Spirit guy. Wow. Uh, yeah, the two of them, quite the power couple. Um, unfortunately, they're not flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, something completely different. Moving along. Looking for a city built above. Looking for a city. Sorry, looking for a city. <laughs> looking to clean my ears out. All right, so uh, we're heading over to the Life Today television program uh, with James Robeson and his guest, uh, Robert Morris. Robert Morris happens to be the pastor of James Robeson. And we've noted uh, that they have apostolic leadership there. Yeah, they're into the NAR. And uh, so we're going to hear um, some doctrine. The problem is we're not going to hear biblical doctrine. Mm -hmm. We're going to begin with that all-important central doctrine of evangelicalism that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. And then we're going to extrapolate from that truth doctrines that apparently hinge on that central concept but are not actually taught in Scripture. Yeah, here's James Robeson to kind of set things up in his conversation with Robert Morris on this important topic of hearing the voice of God. Here we go. Why, why would they call it? You get a little bit excited to know that they're sharing some things with you. And I want to tell you something. You may not ever have a well-known person, highly visible church leader, or national leader, or well-known person just ever call you. But and, and there's a little gratitude that you might be able to hear from them or speak to them. But the most important communication you'll ever have is the greatest person in the entire universe, and that's Father, our Father God, our Father who art in heaven, who in your heart wants to have real communication with you. And Robert, if the people watching us get it, if Gateway gets it the way you know you want them to, Mm -hmm. and they realize they can hear God's voice and actually have fellowship, have conversation with God where they know it's Him. Now, note, we're talking about communication with God, where God is actually communicating directly to you without the written word of God. You really believe with all your heart that that's possible 
and important for everybody here and everybody watching on television. Yeah, it's not only possible, uh, it's, um, it's so important. Mm, yeah. All right, so immediately my question is, all right, let, show me the biblical passages that say that God is going to speak directly to you, and this is a vital part of having a relationship with the Father. I want to see the biblical text. There is no text that says that. Hmm. Instead, we are told that God's word, the written word, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That uh, all scripture, the written word, is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. All of that, We so we got the whole admonition of the word of God itself you know, the Word of God imploring us to pay attention to the Word of God, pastors told to preach the Word, the written Word. Hmm, but I can't seem to recall a particular passage that says that God specifically wants to communicate directly to every one of his children this side of the resurrection. We got a problem here. I mean, when you think about it, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, you do. Um, And so we're... So, okay, yeah, it's true that God has a relationship with us, but although it's kind of a bad metaphor, I, I would recommend, if you want to clear this up, you need to get a copy of Brian Wolfmuller's book um, titled, Has American Christianity Failed? He spends quite a bit of time discussing the problems with this way of talking. In the in notice here, we're not actually going to a biblical text just that central doctrine of evangelicalism, the personal relationship doctrine. Well, how in the world could it be personal without communication? Right, yeah. See, if it's a personal relationship, well, then that means there needs to be communication. So you need to hear directly from God. Notice, again, what's missing here. A clear biblical text that teaches this doctrine. This is not based upon a text that teaches this doctrine. This is based upon you know, an extrapolation from a reality or a slogan or something. Hmm, but there is no biblical text that teaches this concept. And how in the world could we believe that this God that spoke for 4,000 years? Now, as impressive as that sounds, as a biblical argument, I would note this. Um, Yes, it's true that the Bible is comprised of different authors writings who heard directly from God uh-huh and and then took this word these words from God and put them into the book that we now call the Bible of Bibles think of it as a library if you would 66 books how many authors though how many 40 something yeah Low 40s on that, by the way. It depends on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews If you know, regarding the number of authors there. Um, so we got a problem here. Uh, in 4,000 years, God used exactly 40 fellows? Hmm. Yeah. And uh, you'll note that, um, that it's kind of rare. You know, of the 4,000 years, it's pretty rare for people to actually hear directly from God. Now, granted, there's more than 40 people who heard from God. I mean, there are people whose stories are recorded in Scripture who didn't write it. But 
when you tally up the total number of people who heard directly from God, um, you know, you know, this is the word of the Lord style, um, it amounts to a tiny microscopic fraction. Fraction, yeah. Um, it's it's as if God intended all along to communicate in mass to all of His creatures. Um, via the written word, the revelation of the word of God, which is then broadly broadcast. So I know this sounds like a solid argument, but on his part, no, this is false, because even when you read the scriptures, people hearing directly from God, even during the theocracy of of, uh, Israel, very rare, very rare. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to um, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, David, Adam, and Eve. Well, yeah, this is true. Again, I'm just noting that in the grand history of human history, the number of people who heard directly from God during the time when the Bible was being written, very, very, very few. He spoke. He came on this earth. He spoke. After he ascended, he spoke to Paul. He spoke. Yeah, this is true. In visions, he spoke in dreams. He spoke. Yeah, there's different ways in which God communicated to people. This is true as well. Again, I'm just noting that, as impressive as an argument as this goes, it's not really a biblical argument and ignores certain facts. And notice here that somehow he's taking the description of God speaking to different people and turning it into a prescription that apparently you're supposed to be hearing from God. Because I mean, after all. If we're supposed to be having a personal relationship, which, by the way, you're going to need some clear passages to kind of flesh all of that out, um, then it just logically follows. You can't have a relationship without communication. Therefore, ergo, it must logically follow that God's going to directly speak to you apart from the written word. No, actually, it doesn't follow like that in all Christian doctrines. Uh, must, in order for them to be a Christian doctrine, have clear texts that actually teach the doctrine in question to deborah he spoke to ruth i mean and then all of a sudden he just quit speaking he lost his voice or something i don't know what happened (laughs) yeah it's not even an argument that's a straw man i can't even imagine that we would ever believe that but a lot of people do and a lot of people do and 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 some churches teach it some churches teach but even those who teach it many times yeah again one of the things i've noted here in the nine years that we've been doing fighting for the faith almost nine years it'll be nine years in june um, that uh, pretty much everybody who claims to be hearing directly from God, um, yeah, they all kind of fit into the wingnut, Bible twister, very dangerous wolf in sheep's clothing category, yeah, including Robert Morris. Strange, isn't that? Will teach a call to preach. And they feel very called to preach. And that's really what we're trying to say. In the same way you felt that impression, or you felt God spoke to you, in the same way God still speaks today. He never says anything contrary to his word. Ne- <laughs> well, that's weird. we got a whole bunch of people out there claiming to be hearing directly from God who are always contradicting God's word, and their revelations literally equate to new revelation and new doctrines. Huh. But he does speak. I mean, why would we even pray if he's not going to speak? Yeah, that's kind of the weird thing. Um, The word pray itself, prasukama, yeah, it actually means to petition a deity. It is not a word that means I'm going to have a conversation with God. Yeah, the the word itself, prayer in the Greek, yeah, it it actually implies that this is a one-way 
petition of God himself. And think about this also. If, if two guys are being offered a job, a new job. Now notice here, he's just talking about what he thinks is reasonable and rational in his own mind. Why isn't he going to a clear biblical text to show us the passage that says that God wants to speak directly to each and every one of us? And here is how you go about hearing his voice. And the answer is simple. There's no text that says that. Uh, One's a believer and one's not a believer. What's the difference? There's only one difference. Both of them check out the companies. Both of them would think about the neighborhood, the schools. They do all their research. But what's the difference? The difference is one can hear God. (laughs) That's the only difference is one has a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, again, having a relationship with Jesus does not ergo mean that you're going to hear directly from Jesus. And so I brought all of this up and, you know, showed you this in order to, you know, kind of make the point. The doctrine itself of hearing the voice of God is not based upon a biblical text. It's based upon extrapolations on what sounds reasonable and rational based upon, well, of course, that central idea that that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Yet you're going to look long and hard to find that personal relationship language spelled out in the way they're talking about it. Yeah, it's more of a description of our relationship, a human description of our relationship with God. But notice they're now they're building doctrines off of this description, this slogan, this evangelical slogan. And the problem is you can't do doctrine this way. You need biblical text to teach biblical doctrines. And Christians are only to believe doctrines that are biblical. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break when we come back. It's a non-exegetical verse-by-verse sermon by Eric Johnson. Weird. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AA, to our considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. 
Christian, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. This is a, a unique-ish sermon. And like I said, Eric Johnson's going to try to exegete, but like fall far short. But we got to do this right. Hang on. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Church, Redding, California. Eric Johnson, son of Bill Johnson, presiding. The name of the sermon is... You give them something to eat. It's going to be the story of the feeding of the 5,000 from the Gospel of Mark. And like I said, this is a failed attempt at exegesis. I don't know what this is. It's like utterly missing the whole point of the text. He's so chopped it up that his commentary actually doesn't help us understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture at all. And it's important to note that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that Jesus performs that appears in all four Gospels apart from the resurrection. So uh, I think you kind of get the point. Let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's Eric Johnson, and you give them something to eat. Here we go. I was in Toronto from Monday through uh, Friday, I think it was, and that's my first time there, which is kind of surprising on so many levels because Toronto has, uh, I think it's fair to say that we are forever indebted to John and Carol or not and what God has done through the Toronto uh, church. Uh, yeah, that would be like the Toronto blessing 
Church. Yeah, go back and listen to the archives of Fighting for the Faith from the summer of 2016. We covered uh, the the so-called Toronto blessing and, and demonstrated that that is not from God the Holy Spirit. That was wickedness uh, on steroids. Um, if you're unaware, here's a little bit of our history. Um, my parents flew out to Toronto in 1994 when the Holy Spirit fell on Father's Day and literally for the last 20-something years continues to this day. Yeah, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. But for the first, I don't know, 10 years, 5, 10, at least 10 years, um, they, I believe millions of people have gone to that church over the last however many years just to get a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. So I know that my parents and some of my grandparents and other people, you guys went out there 20 something years ago and something you brought back something and a lot of that erupted in Weaverville and in Northern California because of that. And so it's a real honor to be there. I told them that it feels awkward and weird for me to be up here preaching when I've never been here before. I should be in the front row just receiving. So I did both at the same time and um, it was quite fun, but I couldn't help but acknowledge the carpet. It was special. Let me just say that. The carpet at Toronto was special. I mean, it was, it was, it was unique. I'll just put it that way. And I, um, I would, distracted, not the right word, I was pulled. My eyes just couldn't take my eyes off the carpet. Now, how many have ever been to Twinview campus? Okay. Now, we just put new carpet in. So the carpet before, how many remember the carpet before? Okay, you remember how floral and leaves, like leaves everywhere. Well, if you can picture that, but they're smaller leaves, and it was like pastel pink, pastel mauve, and purple. I mean, it was a sight to see. And so I, I was sitting in the front row just really just like, man, this is some special carpet here. <laughs> On so many levels. Honestly, and I'm, I'm not being critical, I'm being honest here, because millions of people have gotten met by God on that carpet. Now, I used to tell people at the Twin View, because um, I used to run second year over there before it moved over to this campus, and people say, man, worship is so good over here. And I said, do you know why worship is good over here? No one looks down. Everyone's looking up. <laughs> I would tell people all the time, that's why worship is good over here. You put bad carpet in, it, in your room, then somehow worship will go to another level, because everybody's gazing up. So, that's a joke. You can laugh. Permission to laugh. So anyway, so I spoke the first couple days, and then Heidi came in and did the next, the last couple days, and so we. That would be Heidi Baker, uh, Shabbat. That that woman overlapped one day, so she came in. I hadn't seen her. She kind of came and sat down. I leaned over and said, "Heidi, where were you when you got touched by God?" Because if you don't know Heidi's story, this was I think around 20 years ago. This was way back when the renewal um, was breaking out, and Heidi, um, her and Roland. Um, missionaries in Africa at the time. I think they had. Yeah, and uh, we recently reviewed a sermon by Roland, if you can call it that. Um, total nonsense uh, that he uh, recently delivered at Glory City Church. Just a few weeks ago, we covered that, and it was demonic. That's the best way I could describe it. At three churches, and their language was they were all on life support, they were just not thriving at all. And they were burnt out, exhausted, and um, they, they heard about what God was doing in Toronto. They said, we want to go there and get touched by the Holy Spirit, get refreshed, get touched, etc. 
and their, their support at the time that pretty much helped fund the entire ministry said, if you go there, uh, we will withdraw all of our support because of the, the controversy surrounding a lot of the manifestations and renewal, and it was an interesting season for the church. And, but Heidi said, I'm hungry. I'm going anyway. So she went. And so the, the, the people that covered her, supported her, pretty much withdrew her support. So now she literally has nothing. And so she showed up in Toronto, and basically the story goes like this. For seven days, she became literally immobile. They had to carry her in and out to the hotel, back to the meeting, back to the hotel. Roland says, I pretty much did everything. I dressed her, fed her, and everything else you have to do for someone that can't move. I pretty much did that for, for seven days. She got rocked by God. And then, as they say, the rest is history. Now they have over 10,000 churches, and Iris, um, their ministry in Africa, is one of the most thriving missions organizations on the planet and probably will go down as one of the greatest, um, seriously, at that. And so I was like, where were you when you got touched by God? And she was like, oh, it was first time was in the back. And she pointed to the back wall. It was over in that corner, and then, she thought, and then right up here. This is where I really got touched, right up here. And I said, Heidi, you know what you should do? You should, like, if they ever replace this carpet, you should, like, get a little chunk, and, like, they should send you a chunk. Or maybe have an outline of your body, you know, on it. (laughs) So the carpet at uh, the Toronto church is a holy relic. Okay. I just lay down and outline it. That might be creepy, but it'd be kind of cool to have, have a piece of carpet history. So, anyway. All right, if you have your Bibles, open it up to uh, Mark chapter 6. I have a really simple... Yeah, we'll follow along too. Mark, Mark chapter 6. We're going to go back into the context to note something here. This is going to look like exegesis, but it's not. A word today, and there's just a few things I want to pull out of a passage of Scripture. It's a very well-known passage. It's, um, it, it's um, one version, if you will, of feeding of the 5,000. And uh, it's one of those great stories, and I I love this story on so many levels, and I'll tell you why after I take my sip of water. I love this story because it's one one of the great miracles that marks Jesus' ministry. I mean, it never gets old to hear, even present day, food is multiplied. And I love getting with email story. Food was multiplied. I did this thing and food multiplied. I, I had enough food for 100 people and ended up feeding 1,000 people. And it, so why, why? So notice he's, ta- oh yeah, this, the reason this is a cool story is because we, we at Bethel Church, because, you know, we're in the signs and wonders thing. Oh, we hear, we hear uh, food multiplication miracle stories all the time here. So it's cool, you know. Uh, is that the reason why this um, account is in all four Gospels? Why do we love those stories? It's because of what happened here in this story where Jesus fed 5,000 people. But there's, another, there's a bunch of other stuff going on within this story. Most of us walk away from reading the story that Jesus took the loaves and fishes, multiplied it, fed, and they're left over. Amazing. But there's so many other dynamics that are taking place in this story that I want to take a little bit of time today to kind of pull them out. And I think they're actually they're important because they're part of how this whole thing transpired. But what we sometimes, uh, maybe you don't know it or not, but I, I think sometimes we don't realize that Jesus, obviously he, he's the miracle worker. He's a food multiplier. I mean, he did all these signs and wonders. But Jesus was also doing other things, such as he was raising up, at the time, 12 men to continue the message of the kingdom. He was, he was raising up leaders for the future. 
So what Jesus, so I like to read the gospel with the, the you know, the, the signs and wonders, the miracles, the, the memorial stones, the, the standard of, of signs and wonders. But I also like to look beneath that and go, how was Jesus raising up the disciples? What was he doing? What, what was the, what was the language? What was he, sometimes he directly challenged him. Other times he put like a bait on the end of a stick down the road and go, if you really want it, you have to go over there and get it. I mean, he was constantly molding and, and Paul talked about it in the When did Jesus put bait on a stick and say, if you really want it, you got to go down the road to get it? I'm not familiar with that at all. Book of Galatians saying Christ is actually being formed in us, or we're being formed in Christ. There is this journey and process. And so here we have one small snapshot of Jesus actually working with his disciples to shape them. And as we know today, we're actually here today because they're the results of what the disciple did with their life after Jesus went back to be with his father. So that's how I want to read this story. And we're going to kind of read our way through it and talk about a few things. And then we'll, we'll conclude at some point. So go to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark is an exciting book because it's the shortest gospel and it's very active. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Weird place to start. Now, I'm just going to ask the question. Why was the gospel of Mark written? Same reason it, uh, that, uh, well, the Gospel of John was written. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, we're going to start, we're going to apply the three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and they are context, context, context. And we'll even pull in a cross-reference here so we can see what's going on. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 is where we will begin. Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they do not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now watch, verse 14, a little bit of an excursus. King Herod heard of it, uh, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. Others said, well, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was uh, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him uh, want to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in, and dance, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. 
And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, but sorrowful because of his oath and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John the Baptist's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So you notice, Jesus sends out his disciples, gives them authority. They're going out and preaching, repent. We get an excursus in the story, the fate of John the Baptist. Verse 30 then picks up where it left off with the disciples who were sent out who were preaching, repent. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the people, and he divided the two among the among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate were about five thousand men. Okay, now, this is interesting, and John chapter 6 helps us understand how those who were there understood the miracle. So let's flip on over to John chapter 6, and we'll do a little bit of cross-reference work. Now keep in mind, this is all related in one way or another to, well, the feeding of the children of Israel in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16, the manna. Yeah, the what is it? Now the next installment of Roseboro's Ramblings through Exodus, I think we'll play it on Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, in the second hour, we'll, we'll play that one. We'll, we'll cover this more in depth, but I uh, I want you to see how the people there understood it, because you'll notice that Mark noted that this was a desolate place. They were in the wilderness, he even talked about the green grass and all that kind of stuff. So they're out in the middle of nowhere. So John chapter 6, here's how John records this exact same event. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing 
on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes. Then, and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii with the bread would not be enough for each of these to get even a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now a little bit of a note here. You won't hear this in the uh, Rosebros Rambling on Exodus, but the fact that there were 12 baskets full left over tells you that Jesus had the people there sit down in 12 groups, one for each disciple, hmm, 12 groups, one for each of the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel being fed miraculous food uh huh, in the wilderness. Starting to see the theme, your cross-reference is Exodus 16. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, the the idea here is is that this miracle what makes it so cool to use Eric Johnson's way of describing this is a cool miracle is that it reveals who Jesus is he's miraculously feeding Israel in the wilderness by multiplying food all of this points back to well the wilderness wanderings of Israel and they immediately recognize who Jesus is he was the prophet prophesied by Moses. That's what's going on here. And so that's why this is important. But um, Eric Johnson, he, well, he, see, his signs and wonders theology is in the driver's seat and is coloring his attempt at exegeting this text. He's not going to exegete it. He's going to do something that looks like exegesis, but isn't. We continue. Let me back up just a little bit. So go to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark is an exciting book because it's the shortest gospel and it's very action-packed. Mark is kind of like the, uh, I don't know, he, he just liked all action. He just wanted all the action, the story, the drama. and that's what so The book of Mark is kind of that, kind of that flavor. So ch- verse 30 of chapter 6. Are you there? Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Let's pause right there. The context of this story is John the Baptist had just been beheaded, literally in just a couple verses prior to this one. So this is, this is the context that the man himself that paved the way for the Messiah, that prepared... Actually... No, the context of verse 30 is that Jesus sent his disciples out. Uh Uh-huh. 
That's why they're returning. The uh, John the Baptist story is an excursus in the Markan narrative. The world to know someone is coming. The Messiah is coming. That man who Jesus said is, is the standard, like John the Baptist is the standard, that man gets beheaded. So you can imagine there probably is a normal concern that who's next in line? Potentially Jesus. Because John the Baptist would consider it, if you will, the most threat to the religious political system of the day. Who's next in line? The text doesn't mention anything about anybody's anxiety about who's next in line. And what exactly do you mean by saying John the Baptist is the standard? That doesn't sound at all like how any of the narratives describe John the Baptist or even how Jesus himself described John. He violated so many things that people had a hard time with him, yet they flocked to him out in the wilderness. So John the Baptist is beheaded, so you would, you would, it's natural to think, okay, who's next in line? It would be Jesus. So here we have the context of the story we're about to read. So the disciples, the apostles, they gathered with Jesus and told him all things that they had done and seen. Why is that important? I, I, sometimes we read over these verses, and I want to just highlight it for a moment. It's important, for one, because it's in the Bible. But secondly, why is it really important? If there was a level of reporting and accountability among the disciples, they act, if you read the Gospels, you will find this numerous times in there. They, they went out and they came back and told Jesus what had happened. Why is that? Jesus sent them out. Go f- further back in Mark. We read it. Jesus had sent them out. Upon their return, they're doing the natural thing. They're letting Jesus know how their you know, training mission, this is him training them how to do evangelism, how that all went down. That important. They're, they're keeping themselves on the front line aware of what God is doing. So this whole testimony, sharing stories, what God is doing, it's not something that is for a season. It is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle to come back together. What on earth? So this means that testimonies are a lifestyle. No, that is not a valid implication from this narrative. Like I said, this is not exegesis. This is nonsense. Gather and say, what is God doing in your world? Now, it doesn't have to be some massive trip to the other side of the planet. It could be, how was your day today? How did you see God move in your day today? And some of us have, how many know, like, we love the firework testimonies. They never get old. But when one of those small, subtle ones happen to you, sometimes they're even more profound than the big ones. So I want to encourage you, don't think, oh, that's just kind of personal to me. You know, if it's personal to you, it should be personal to the people around you. Amen. Verse 31. And he said to them, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rushed a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Now I'm going to note what he did there. He created an application from the narrative that isn't there at all. And this is part of the problem in evangelicals, always looking for some application. Well, see, they reported to Jesus after they went out. So that means that uh, testimonies are a lifestyle. You know, we need to 
No, that's not what that means at all. And he doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. And it's clear he's never been to a seminary that taught him how to rightly understand and work with historical narratives in, uh, in the Bible. Verse 31, there's a phrase that I just want to pull out for a second. For they were coming and going. Say that with me. They were coming and going. That right there is a symptom, is an indication that God is moving. Yeah, that's <laughs> what? What? Uh, <laughs> so a symptom that God is moving is that they were coming and going. Mm-hmm. Listen to what comes next. This is just nonsense. This is this is this is not exegesis. This is nonsensegesis. This is ridiculous. Jesus. It's just blah. When people are coming and when people are going. Now I don't want to. I need to beat the drum too loud, but I want to because I think it's important. Because sometimes in church we love when people come, but we don't always love it when they go. And I'm just wondering. Oh, man, this is clueless, utterly clueless. This is the blind leading the blind, and they're going, oh, wow, that's just great. This is ama- it's not amazing. This is stupid. Remind us, coming and going is how this thing works. If you come and never go, that's not good. That's not healthy. Now, if going can mean many things for everyone. For some of you, going means you need to literally move to another place in the world and see the gospel preached in that part of the world. Others of you, it's just going to work on Monday. So going is different for everyone. But the bottom line is this. We all should be coming and we should all be going. Are you guys alive this morning? So if you're only coming... And exactly how does one do that? You know... I. Okay, so action step, application. I I need to be coming and going, not just coming or not just going. Yeah. So I I need to take an inventory of my life. Have I been both coming and going? Because hmm. that's what God wills for me is to, to do both. This is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. This is like the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Uh-huh, yeah, you, you kind of get the point. We continue. Are you guys alive this morning? So if you're only coming and you're not going, you need to start going. And if you're only going and not actually coming, then you need to start coming. I'm sure this, this, this is an indication. This is why we have people come in for seasons of time and they go somewhere else. And then we have people like Joaquin and Renee. We announced it last week. They're going down to Austin to plant a church because they've been dreaming about it. That's coming and going. So this is the nature of a house that is, that is, if I can say this, that is in the middle of a movement and an outpouring. When God is pouring out, it is a natural response to come and to go. So this is what's happening. Now, what Jesus does, I think several dynamics are happening here. John the Baptist has been beheaded, and I think they're tired. And he said, let's go, on, let's go on a vacation. Let's go on a retreat. So here you have, they get in a boat. Let's read the verse to make sure. So uh, verse 33. 
No, verse 32. So they departed to a deserting place in the boat by themselves, but the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to... Have you ever wondered how do they do that? I think Peter posted on Instagram like, hey, look at where we're going. That's a joke, obviously. There was no Instagram then. But they found out where Jesus was going at the disciples, and they beat them there. So imagine, now, I don't know if you're like me, but when you go on vacation, are you going on vacation to hang out with a multitude of people? Some of you maybe, bless your heart. But I believe most people, I know I'm going on vacation, just kind of retreat. A deserted place, which means solitary, quiet, chill. So imagine going to a vacation, and when you get there, everybody you just left is waiting for you. Now, what you don't find in Scripture is what the disciples said. You find nothing about what Peter said out loud. I'm sure Peter had some interesting choice language at that moment. And John probably just cried, because John's emotional. And he probably hugged Jesus. Why? I don't know. But you don't know, because that's not in there. But imagine that. You go on vacation, and you left people, and they beat you there. This is- yeah, so it doesn't say, so just fill in the gaps with your imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is just bizarre. This is not your ideal vacation. This is not what we all signed up for. But look what happens. And when Jesus came out, saw a great multitude and would move with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now... Of course, we're not surprised by Jesus, because Jesus is Jesus. I mean, he's just perfect in every way. But I want us to dive into this word compassion for a moment. Jesus would move with compassion. Well, of course, Jesus is a compassionate man. I mean, he, he, he is compassion. He doesn't just know how to do compassion. He is the definition of compassion. He is the author of it. But it's important to ask, why was he compassionate? And the answer is right there, because he saw that the sheep had no shepherd. This is fascinating to me, that I want to be on vacation, but no, they don't have a shepherd. Now, I want to highlight this, because sometimes when we talk about being a shepherd, now, for some of you, it is like your ambition life. I just want to be a shepherd. I want to take care of people. And, and you literally set up your life. And I realize not everybody in this room had that ambition. And I think it's important to notice that Jesus, the, the apostle himself, the world changer, the big picture guy. I mean, this guy not only had the big picture, he is the big picture. Yeah. I mean, he is about, I mean, he, the universe was created for him, through him, and by him. So how many know that, that's quite profound. So this guy, we're talking, he knows how to play on the big level. He, he, there is no pay grade above Jesus. And Jesus stops that for a second and said, they don't have a shepherd. He was able to transition out of the big picture into whatever was needed in the moment. What? (laughs) You are aware that Philippians 2 makes it clear that Jesus, at this point in his life, has emptied himself and is in the form of a servant. So Jesus wasn't the big CEO guy. He's here to serve. 
um, by being obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, uh, man, so he does not know uh, how to handle a, a historical narrative at all. And notice he is utterly clueless about the fact that the cross references make it clear that this miracle reveals who Jesus is. And the reason for that, it's a recreation of the feeding of Israel in the wilderness, miraculously. And you know, and he's totally, utterly clueless as to how this actually points to Jesus. So now we're going to see if we can find some application as it pertains to the fivefold ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, you know, things like that. This is a really big deal because I think it's a challenge for us to go, well, I'm called to do this stuff. I'm only called to do this big stuff. But if something arises that doesn't fit into that, what do we do? Some of us, ah, not my responsibility. I want to propose to you. Now, I, have, I love the fivefold. I believe in it. I believe in every office, and I believe in it. I believe 100%, at least to my... Yeah, that's right. He believes in modern-day apostles because his papa, Bill Johnson, uh, apparently is one of them. My understanding of the fivefold. Sometimes we get a little bit too segmented with the fivefold. Well, I'm this. Well, you're that. And I'm this. Great. Awesome. More power to you. But let me say something. might unravel something. Jesus demonstrated all five. Jesus actually demonstrated all five. He wasn't like, ah, I'm not your pastor today. Sorry. Not my job. In fact, none of the apostles, they're not called to be pastors. There's no discussion like that in Scripture, in the gospel. Jesus goes. So notice he's not actually exegeting what's there. Uh, now he's finding meaning in what isn't there in a way that is totally missing the whole point of the miracle. The miracle points to Christ and who he is. Oh, they need a shepherd. That will be me right now. We had a, we had a, a, a new friend who's becoming um, uh, more than just a new friend, becoming a friend. And he, um, he started a pretty large leadership movement called Catalyst. Brad Lomernick, some of you might know him. And Brad, we had Brad come out. He happened to be in the area. So we had him come last uh, June, yeah, last June, to do like a, a staff training in the morning. It was a really wonderful time of just some real good leadership stuff. And he made this comment that I, I wrote down, and I want to use it for this point. So when people become a distraction, it's an indication that people have become transactional pieces to the puzzle. What? What? <laughs> Okay, let's just assume that that little pithy statement from the guy who started Catalyst is true, right? It has nothing whatsoever to do with this text. It's fascinating. And he referring to leaders, or he's talking as a leader to our, our, our leaders, our staff. He said, the moment people become a distraction, then they become an object of your plan. And Jesus just destroys all of that. I'm on vacation. I've got things to do. And a multitude waiting, and he goes, nope, they need a shepherd. Forget that. Some of us have boundaries so tight that we forgot to serve people. Now, I'm all about boundaries. You've got to have them. 
But if we don't talk about the other side of the equation, we mistake the purpose of boundaries. The purpose of boundaries... I assure you the feeding of the 5,000 has nothing whatsoever to do with personal boundaries. It's to keep yourself in a healthy place so you can be a gift and a benefit to people that you serve. But if you're only preaching and living a boundaries lifestyle and you forgot you're actually mandated to serve people, then you'll miss the whole point. Kind of like how he's missed the whole point of this text. huh? He's literally at sea in a storm without a rudder, just being blown hither and yon. This story is about Christ and who he is. I was expecting, maybe I wasn't, a, a meta response on that. So I want to challenge you. There's actually... Have your calling, have your mark, have your aim. But if something comes along, especially people. Okay, that's on pause for right now. All I know, they don't have a shepherd. And so I'm going to be a shepherd to them right now. That's why Jesus would move with compassion. He realized, oh, wow, my heart is going to them because no one is leading them right now. No one is taking care of them. All right. Are you still with me? Unfortunately, I'm tracking with you, but you're not actually tracking with the story. Where do we leave off? All right, verse uh, 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. I love when Scripture says the obvious. Yeah, that, that little detail is not a throwaway detail. Right, because this miracle is the feeding of people that are Israelites in a deserted wilderness place. Miraculously, it points to Jesus being God, being the one whom Moses prophesied about, whom the prophets prophesied about. And already the hour of late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. Don't you love that dialogue right there? That's a great little dialogue. The disciples, they're now... Now, note, when we read John 6, the cross-reference, it specifically said that Jesus said this because he knew what he was going to do. Uh Uh-huh. See, Jesus knew already what he was up to. So that little detail helps us. Scripture, interpreting Scripture, paying attention to things in context. And and here's the idea, is that... uh, Well, Eric Johnson is falling short because he's reading this passage in isolation. Yeah, that's right. It's not like he's working his way through the Gospel of Mark. He's not. He's reading it in isolation to the rest of the historic narrative in Mark, and he's reading it in isolation to the overarching narrative of what God in Christ is doing for us to save us. And as a result of it, he's lost the whole plot line, and he doesn't understand how this fits into the grand arc of our salvation. And and by pointing to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so we got some big problems here. It would be like telling the story of, you know, Frodo and, and, uh, and Sam Gamgees, you know, uh, from like the second book, The Two Towers, you know, maybe a, a small section of it as they're heading on their way to Mordor, but um, not not fitting that into the grand story of the destruction of the Ring of Power. 
but you know somehow just zooming in on this and just reading it in isolation that's what he's doing but it's even a little bit worse than that because he hasn't read the account in its entirety the way it's supposed to be read in the narrative itself, he's just taken it and chopped it up into tiny little pieces and has further isolated the little details from the story itself. (laughs) And so this is not exegesis. Like I said, this is nonsensical Jesus. This is absurd Jesus. This is bizarre. Natural human response to the situation was send them away. And the kingdom response, the Jesus response is, no, you give them something to eat. Those are two very different responses to the situation. We have to ask the question, why did the disciples say, send them away? Why did he look at, send them away? They felt powerless. Uh, They said to send them away so that they could purchase food from the surrounding villages. Again, read the cross-reference in John 6. They did not know what to do with the multitude. I think they were bummed that the vacation got violated. And then secondly... Yeah, not a word about them being upset about their vacation time being cut short. They're going, we don't even know what to do with this many people. And Jesus said, they don't have food. And they said, well, send them away. Tell them to go buy food. And Jesus responded, no, you give them something. There's something going on here that I want to see. God is actually trying to get the disciples out of their ability into his ability. Um, no, uh, that's not what's going on at all. Again, our cross-reference, Gospel of John chapter 6. Where are we to buy bread for, so that these people may eat? That's verse 5. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scripture interpreting scripture would be helpful here, uh, Eric. He is actually setting them up to realize when you've got to the end of your ideas and the end of your ability, that's when you have to tap into mine. Uh, no, that's not what's going on at all. The cross-reference in John 6 makes that very clear. This is the moment right here when you say, I feel powerless. I don't know what to do. Now, for me, let me just tell you what it's like for me. Very different than this specific story. But this- Yeah, please tell us about you, Eric. I'm sure that will really help us understand what's going on in this text. Not. It usually happens for me. It's usually Sunday night. Because I get up about 4.30 every Sunday morning. So by the time Sunday night comes, it's been a long day. It, it's, it's up there. It, I've been up a while. And it's usually on my way out the door after Sunday night service. I'm emotionally tired. I'm mentally tired. I'm happy because we had a great day in church. But I'm definitely, understandably, exhausted and tired. And it's usually on my way out, somebody will come and find me and say, Hey, X, Y, Z, I need this. Or I'm in this complicated predicament. And it's like, I am so, me, I'm like so overwhelmed. Why? Because I don't know what to do. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 11 at night. I've been up since four. Right now, I just want to be home and go to bed. It's that moment, send them away or give them something to eat. It's in moments like that where you've reached the end of your ability and God's saying, let trust them. Yeah, there really is no application like this from this text that we're supposed to apply to our lives. This is not what this is about at all. My ability. 
I was with Heidi this last week, and she shared a story that I don't know if maybe some of you have heard it. I don't think she. Oh, great. A Heidi Baker story. That should really help us understand what's going on in this text. Not at all, but okay. She shared it here. And some of you were around when we raised money to buy a well drilling rig. Say that 10 times fast, by the way. That's, that'll, you'll, miss, you'll mix up your W's and your R's. A well drilling rig. We, we raised money here. <laughs> Did I mess it up? Yeah. You know that thing that drills wells? That thing. Yeah, go home and try. I'm telling you. So we raised money for that thing. And we did it here, and we, they bought it. And Heidi tells what had happened. By the time they got their first well, and when we raised the money, I have never heard the between story. I just heard, oh, they're drilling wells, and it's going well, and et cetera, et cetera. And so she shared this story about how they get this, this rig, and they go through two engineers. Two engineers come over that this is what they do. They can't figure out how to work this specific truck, this rig, with a driller and a blaster. They can't figure it out. So two engineers, they, they burn through two engineers. And so here they have this very expensive piece of machinery that's designed to bring water to villages and to the nation. And it's just sitting there unused. Because they can't, no, no one knows how to use it. The guys that are supposed to don't know how to use it. And so now Heidi, obviously, if you don't know Heidi, she is the sweetest human being you'll ever meet. But she's also one of the most driven human beings you'll ever meet. So she's sweet, but man, when she wants something done, she wants it done. And she shared how they went through two um, engineers and frustrated, like they need to get some water. And somebody, a friend of Heidi, said, hey, I got this friend from Texas. They know a bit about drilling into the earth. Oil. And he's an engineer. He, I'll have him come out, and we'll have him take the truck and, and figure it out. So Heidi's like, great, perfect. So they fly this guy out from Texas, and, and Heidi does a much better job because it's her story. But she said, yeah, this guy hopped out. He lands in Mozambique, hopped out of his truck, and the first thing he said to me was, howdy, baby. <laughs> this guy called Heidi a baby. So Heidi's like, I did not like that. No one calls me baby, especially you. And it was in a Texas accent. Howdy, baby. And she's just talking in that Texan. Any Texans in here? And she's just like, she is overwhelmed with this. You don't call me baby. And then he goes on. And she had a team of men who she said, these are the strongest men around. These are strong Mozambican men. And they're just my men. And he said, where are them boys at? So she was mad that this guy said baby to her and called her men boys. She just like, oh, you know, she, you could see, you could see that thing popping up. And the guy goes on and say, you better get your boy praying. They better start praying right now. And she's like, praying? I don't care about praying. Just get my, I want, need a well for water. So they go through several days of it, and the guy had the men praying, told Heidi, I need you to pray too. And she's totally confused by this. This, this guy is not an engineer. He doesn't, he is the farthest thing from an engineer. But his friend said, oh, no, he's one of the top guys in all of Texas. He's like the dude. And so she's like just massive tension of what's going on. Several days go by, and the guy wants to drill the well right by the front door of the church. So literally, it's going to block the entrance. He's like, nope, that's where the well has to be. And she's like, I don't want to move. Nope, this is where. And it's just a weird situation here. 
she was like, I don't know who this guy is. This is not working well for me. And several days go by. I don't know how many days went by. Finally, to make a long story short, he actually drills the well. They get water. It's an amazing story. And then afterwards, she finds out the guy said, I'm no engineer. I have never drilled a well in my entire life. <laughs> Which explains everything that just happened. And she's like, wait, wait, what'd you say? I'm not an engineer. I don't even, I've never drilled a well in my life. And she's like, well, how did you do it? She said, God told me to come, and he gave me a dream exactly how to operate this machine. That's why I had your voice pray, and I had you pray. <laughs> That's somebody that knew his ability ended, and he had to rely on God's ability. Yeah, uh, dubious stories, yeah. No, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. Wow. Yeah, the person who's gotten lost in all of this nonsense is Jesus, whom the story points to. These things were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we might have life in his name. It's a crazy story. I think she should share herself sometime when she comes. In fact, when she comes next, I said, share that story about that engineer that called you baby. That... <laughs> What's the point? Is Jesus is actually going to work with you to get you out of your ability into his ability? Uh, no, that's not what's going on in Mark 6. Okay. So don't limit the anointing to what you think you can do. Yeah, whatever you do, don't limit the anointing. Uh, it's weird because Mark 6 is telling us about the anointed one, Christ. That's what Christ means, the Christos. Um, yeah, so this is just really weird. Verse 39. Actually, uh, let's go to verse 38. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, and they said five and two fishes, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on green grass. I like that, green grass. Aren't you glad? How many like sitting on green grass versus dirt? Somebody was organizing it. Because look what happens next. So they sat down in ranks, 150. I love this because a lot of times we read over the verse, sat down in green grass, they're 50 and 100. No, no, someone actually organized this. Yeah, if you would read the text and the cross-references, you would see that Jesus is the one who organized this. I think that's really important to mention. Like, there was organization going on here. It didn't, it didn't over-organize God. It knew what God was going to do and organized it. So there is a place for organization. Sometimes your responsibility is to create a space and a place, and God will fill it. What are you talking about? Wow, so apparently in the uh, Signs and Wonders Pentecostal Toronto Blessing Movement, uh, you, you got to say things like this because they're really against, you know, organization and structure. And yet, John 6 makes it clear that Jesus is the one who set up the organization for the seating of everybody. Okay. Sometimes you do nothing and God does what he does. But there are many times in Scripture 
Solomon built the temple. What happened next? God came. No one could minister because the presence of God was so thick. What happened? Solomon built a space and a place, and God filled it. All right, everybody. Yeah, again, Solomon building the temple in the presence of the Lord showing up is not a valid cross-reference for this story. The Old Testament cross-reference, again, is Exodus 16 and the feeding of the children of Israel in the wilderness, manna from heaven. Sit down on the grass, 50s and the 100s. What happened? They were organizing something so God could come and it could happen. So- no, no, God was with them already. Jesus is God in human flesh. Man, this is just, like I said, the blind leading the blind. So there is a place for organization in life. I know this is elementary, but some of you need to hear this. You're so spontaneous, you think organization is of the devil. It is not. It can be. It can be the devil. But when you put organization with what God is going to do, it is, all of creation is organized perfectly. It wasn't just, it happened. No, it happened, but there was organization. In fact, Proverbs says that wisdom says, I was there. When he said, let there be light. So somehow wisdom was helping to organize what came out of God's mouth. Let there be light. So just just to help some of you out, organization is beautiful when it partners with what God wants to do. So we talk about the billion soul harvest. It's not a, let's just see what happens. No, there actually has to be a preparation in your heart, in your mind, and in the natural. How are we going to get ready for this? If you want to know how to take your tent stakes out farther... Yeah, this has nothing to do with any billion soul harvest that's supposedly coming. Yeah, these guys are NAR to the hilt, aren't they? Find out what God is saying. All right, move them out. I'm going to put this extra room that I have no need for right now, but because of God's promise, this is my way of saying, God, I trust that you're going to do it. So whoever it was that said 50 and 100, I want to give them an applause right now. I mean, it was Jesus who organized all this. Huh? So you're giving Jesus applause. Wow, that's awful nice of you. Concerned. I want to give them like, way to go. What are they? All right, sit down at 50 and 100 and let's see what happens. And what happens next? Let's read it. So they sat down. Or- no, they didn't say seat them down and then let's see what happens next. This is so bad. Verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples and set to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So today as we wrap up, I want to challenge you. You want to challenge me. The punchline of all of this is that this shows that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he's God among us. Uh, Read John 6. It was this miracle that made them realize who Jesus is. They were going to make him king by force. You're going to wrap up without telling me about Jesus? Wow. The God is actually trying to get you out of your ability into his ability. Yeah, no, I assure you, this has nothing whatsoever to do with what this text says. What you just said is nonsense. What was hard five years ago that required risk, 
no longer requires risk, guess what? There's another level of risk he wants to take you into. And so Jesus is working. Some of you are like, oh, that's what God's doing in my life right now. I didn't realize that. He's actually working with you right now to get you to step in. Yeah, again, this was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. You keep talking like you think this this story is about you. This isn't about you. It's about Christ. To his ability. And then I want to challenge you in conclusion as well. I love assignments. I love callings. I love the fivefold. I love all of it. 100%. But if it actually takes you away from recognizing what's in front of you, then you might have missed the point of the calling. Yeah, kind of like how you totally missed the whole point of this text. It's really important. Well, someone else would just send them away. No, no, we got to learn. Oh, this is in front of me right now. I'm going to give them something to eat. Why don't you stand? Done. Utterly clueless, the blind leading the blind. I mean, that was not exegesis. I, you know, it was just gobbledygook. Wow, talk about an adventure in missing the whole point of the Bible. Hmm. That's what happens when you think the Bible's about you rather than about Christ. You just utterly remain in the dark. The Bible remains a closed book, and you remain blind and unable to actually see. It's like you have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. That's really sad and tragic. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at fire Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, despite carry his death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>